Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to One on One. I am your host, Jimmy Olson, and today I get an opportunity to talk with a Dr. Glenn Livingston. Now, he's a veteran psychologist, and he, well, his credentials go on and on and on, but I mean, it's not just the credentials of the conversation we're going to have today, but it's just his journey himself. Glenn, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. You're Certainly an enthusiastic guy. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Glenn, he's written the book, well, one of eight books that he's written, but it's called Never Binge Again. And I know I've had the opportunity to uh, kind of follow him for a few years on a lot of the great things that he's doing in his, in his program. But uh, Glenn, let's kind of get things started. Let's really kind of go back to the beginning and just kind of give us your history that kind of led up to this. Well, have you ever been to a 7-Eleven and they were out of Pop-Tarts and pizza? No, never. <laughs> well, <laughs> well if, you, if you live near me, you probably would have been because I probably got there first. <laughs> so I, I, um, I'm not just a doctor that was deciding to work in weight loss. I actually avoided weight loss work my whole life because I had a serious problem. Um, my top weight was probably about 280. And the worst part of it was that I was really obsessed with food and it was taking away from my ability to work with clients and I work with some risky clients, you know, like suicidal people and people right after an affair and um, never lost anyone. And out of hundreds of couples, I saw only two of them ever got divorced, but um, that I know of, <laughs> but, but it bothered me because I wasn't fully present and you know, I'm from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists and um it's always been one of the most important things to me to be a really good psychologist and i it was interfering so i mean if i if i could have three minutes to tell you the totality of my story then i think it'll make a lot more sense what we Absolutely. Just, you know, take us to where you need to take us. Again, I'm talking with that Glenn Livingston, the author of Never Binge Again, kind of giving us the backstory of where this all got started. And Jimmy, remind me how much time we have. Oh, we have plenty. We, we're open. Okay. Okay. So when I was about 17, I figured out that because I'm 6'4 and modestly muscular, if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. I could have boxes of muffins, whole pizzas, pasta, Pop-Tarts, whatever you could imagine. Um, I, I ate it. 
And I didn't think this was a problem at all. I thought it was a great thing. I thought it was like a superpower. I got that phrase from Doug Graham when he explained he had the same thing when he was a kid. And I didn't have a problem with it at all until I was 23, 24, and I got married. And right after I got married was my first year in graduate school, the end of my first year in graduate school. And I was driving from Bayville, Long Island, all the way into the Bronx, New York, about two hours each way to see patients, to, um, to take classes. And then I would drive home and I would be helping my, she's my ex-wife now, but my wife at the time, I'd help her with the business. And I just didn't have time to work out. I maybe a half hour a week. And the problem was that the food seemed to have a life of its own. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I would be, you know, sitting in working with a patient and thinking about when the next time I could get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the tray into my stomach. And um, because I come from a family of psychologists, I assume the problem must be that there's a hole in my heart. So you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to see some of the best doctors around, best, the best therapists, the best um, psychiatrists, took medication. I went over as anonymous several times. I even wound up conducting my own 40,000-person study. I'll explain to you how that happened in a minute. Um, and it was a very soulful journey, and I don't regret having taken it. And I learned a lot about myself, and I made a lot of connections that lasted me a lifetime. But it didn't really help me overcome the binging. I would lose some weight, and then I would gain more. I'd lose some weight, and then I would gain more. And eventually, there were three things that happened that caused me to flip the paradigm. Instead of trying to nurture my wounded inner child back to health, I realized that I was going to have to be more like an alpha wolf dealing with a challenger in the pack for leadership. Mm-hmm. And when this thing, whatever it was, challenged for leadership, I was going to have to be like that alpha wolf that would growl and snarl and say, you know, it doesn't say, oh, someone needs a hug. It, it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? Exactly. It was, yeah. So the three things that led me to that conclusion were, one was a little bit of study of neurology where I came to understand there were really three parts of the brain. And the part of the brain that responds to food addiction, all the bags and boxes and containers that are manufactured by industry, that's really the lizard brain, the reptilian brain. It's the most primitive part of the brain, and it doesn't matter whether you believe in evolution or not. It's just kind of the lowest part of the brain stem that's responsible for the primitive survival responses. When it looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it or do I kill it? Think of a college drinking game. It's eat, mate, or kill. It's not love. It it doesn't really know love. And that's interesting because everybody out there is telling you you have to love yourself more in order to overcome a food addiction. But the part of your brain that's really addicted doesn't know love. Right. So that was a a clue. The second thing was because I didn't have kids and I didn't commute. My my ex-wife traveled for business all the time. I had a lot of time and I wound up developing a second career as a marketing consultant. I did advertising research, psychological advertising research for very big companies, um, mostly in the food and pharma space. Mm -hmm. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war. 
and I helped them sell a lot of things that I'm not proud of back then. But, you know, I did it and I learned a lot of things that are helpful now. Um, one of the things that I saw was how much money, time, and energy goes into engineering these, in big food, these hyper palatable food-like substances, which are concentrated sources of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And it's all packaged up in a small space at an affordable price. And then it's advertised in a way that makes you think that you need it to survive. And, and it's all targeting the reptilian brain to try to find the bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result is addiction. The result is that every time you are looking for the love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the neck. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm exaggerizing and caricaturizing, but not much. It's, it's really what's going on there. And then, you know, the advertising industry distorts things a lot further. So, for example, I remember um, I had a buddy who was a VP of marketing for a big food bar manufacturer who shall rename nameless so they don't sue my butt. And he told me their most profitable insight was when they took the vitamins out of the bar and they put money into the packaging instead. They made it look shiny and they put a diversity of colors and you know, shiny diversity of colors is supposed to signal a diversity of nutrients available to the brand. So that's the reason that we're attracted to color. If you think about, um, you know, a big green salad with blueberries and purple cabbage and, you know, yellow carrots and red tomato. And you think of that diversity of rich colors. We crave that because on an evolutionary basis, it, it, was, it was a predictable, reliable way to find a diversity of nutrients. It's like, it's like a rainbow in a bowl. You know, you always look for that rainbow after the rain. Yeah. It's like a rainbow in a bowl. And yeah. It's a good thing to look for when you're eating. Right. Except, except when you're eating commercial stuff that is, is faking you out. Right. It's, it's, it's almost predatory. Except for when um, you're having the Twinkies and the Ding Dongs and all that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And these were, these were food bars or meal replacement bars that were supposed to be nutritious. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean to single out that company because it goes on all across the industry. And so I, I said to myself, okay, so these are two very powerful forces that have nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or that I was in a bad marriage or that I had a hole in my heart. This, these were powerful forces that were set up to help everybody overeat. And then the last thing that flipped the paradigm was this study that I did on my own. When internet clicks were cheap and it was possible to purchase them, you know, for a couple of cents each. Sure. I, I set up a study in the late 90s to ask people what they were stressed about in their life and which, um, which foods they couldn't stop eating. And I found three interesting things. One was that people that struggled with chocolate, and I always started my binges with chocolate. Mm -hmm. I always said that's all it was going to be. I was just going to have a couple of bites and then came the multiple bars and pizza and pasta. Um, I'm only going to have one Hershey bar and then next thing you know, all six of them are gone in the package. I mean, exactly. it, it happens. <laughs> my, my, my sister can take two little squares out of her purse and fold up the rest for later. And I, I don't know what's wrong with that woman. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, 
I, fa- I found in this study that people who couldn't stop eating chocolate that tended to be lonely or brokenhearted, maybe a little depressed. I found that people who couldn't stop eating pretzels and chips, they tended to be stressed out at work and people who couldn't stop eating starchy, chewy things like pasta or bread or bagels or even pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. Interesting. I thought that was, it is interesting, right? It's, yeah. I mean, that's one thing you've never really heard with, you know, a lot of the conversations that you hear when it, when they, people talk about weight loss or changing habits of where specific foods can actually adapt to where you are, you know, the, the, the problems in your life. I've not heard that one before. Well, I went up, I didn't go too far down that road. I'll tell you why, because I, I think that it's not the most relevant parts. I'm sorry. I have something in my throat. Um, I decided before I started talking about that publicly or anything that I would go back and investigate for myself what happened to me. Sure. So, so I asked my mom, who is not only my mom, but a therapist. And I said, mom, what happened in my youth that led me to rent the chocolate when I felt lonely or depressed or brokenhearted? I mean, I, I am, I am feeling like that because I just have to get some water. I'm so sorry. Give me one second. No, you're fine. And, and as you're going through that, I mean, just just a, a quick side note is if you really think about it and look at the the commercials and different things that you see on TV, they actually kind of like tie that. You know, if you had if you're depressed or things are bad, I mean, that's why even in TV shows, they always run to the bonbons when they had a really bad day. Yeah, I I always think of the um, the Golden Girls having chocolate cheesecake. Right. I'll get out the cheesecake. So, so um. Okay, my throat is better now. So I called my mom and I said, Mom, it's true, my life is like that right now, but what happened? How did this pattern get set up? And she hangs her head and she's almost embarrassed. And I said, Mom, it doesn't matter. It's 40 years ago. I'm just trying to understand things better now and see if I can help myself and maybe help other people later. And she says, well, I'm so sorry, but when you were one year old in 1965, Vietnam was raging and your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him overseas. And we thought maybe if we had another kid that they wouldn't send him overseas, but really I was terrified that I was gonna wind up an army widow with two small kids and no way to support them. And then at the same time, my dad, your grandpa, he actually just got out of jail. And you know what, he was guilty. And I'd adored him my whole life. I had no idea he was doing these things. And he was guilty. And my whole world fell apart. Mm-hmm. So, so half the time when you came to get fed or played with or cuddled, I was just um, sitting and staring at the wall. I didn't have the energy to do it. So I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator by the floor. And I'd say, go get your Bosco, Glenn. And you'd go crawling over to the Bosco. You'd open the refrigerator. You'd take, take off the cap and you'd suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Mm-hmm. And you know, Jimmy, if, if this were a movie, at that point, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and I'd never have chocolate again, right? Or never have right. trouble with it again. But what actually if happened life is- only Hollywood, right? <laughs> if life was only Hollywood, right? Exactly. <clears throat> but things actually got worse. Things actually got a bunch worse then. And the reason is, is that there was this crazy voice inside me, which I now know is a voice of justification, that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right? Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. 
And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this bad marriage, we're going to have to go right on binging. Yippee, let's go get some more chocolate right now. Okay. And that just made me change the way I thought about everything. I said, okay, let's say the emotions are a fire. Well, you could have a raging fire in a well-contained fireplace in the living room. And that's not a problem. It becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around, they make memories, they tell stories. It's only a problem if there's a problem with the fireplace and ashes can get out and burn down the house. Right. And so I said, well, so maybe I don't have to fix these emotional problems. Maybe I just have to fix the fireplace. And I realized that what was poking holes in the fireplace was this voice of justification. And if I could disempower the voice of justification from allowing ashes to get through the fireplace, then I'd be okay and maybe that would be quicker. So here's what I did. I put all this together and this is really kind of embarrassing for a sophisticated psychologist you know, who's done tens of millions of dollars of consulting and published all these papers. Um, but this is what I did and this is what got me better and I thought it was gonna be private at the time. I told myself that my reptilian brain, I was gonna call that my inner pig. Mm -hmm. I decided I was gonna draw, draw a really clear line in the sand to distinguish healthy versus unhealthy behavior. So I'd said, well, you know what? I'm never gonna have chocolate on a weekday again. That's the first thing I'm gonna experiment with. Okay. And then I said, well, chocolate on a weekday, that's pig slop. And if my pig is squealing in the background with any reason whatsoever, to have chocolate, I'm gonna say, that's just my pig squealing. I don't want that, my pig does. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And it's very crude, it was very primitive. It's really embarrassing to reveal all the time now. But that's how I got better. Not immediately, but a little at a time. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds to make the right decision. And over time, I realized that I was the one creating the rules, so there was no point in not following them. And, um, you know, I got better slowly but surely. And at first, it was just I don't have chocolate on the weekends. And then I kind of addressed what I was doing with um, pasta. And then it was flour as a whole. And then, then it was sugar. And I slowly but surely got the crap out of my diet. And then I started to realize I needed to add things to my diet. So I had to add more more greens and some more fruit and um, and I experimented with all kinds of different rules and I you know I came up with a, a set of categories for the rules and long story short I got better mm -hmm. and I kept the journal for eight years of me versus my inner pig and all the crazy things it would say and how I disempowered it and then as I was getting divorced in 2015 I was a minor partner in a publishing company because I've been in all kinds of businesses over the years. Mm -hmm. And the CEO of the publishing company says, Glenn, we need to write a book. We need to write a book so that we can prove that we know what we're doing in terms of marketing and we can attract better authors. I said, well, I have this crazy journal. So I edited it into a book. I sent it to him. And two weeks later, he calls me back and he says, Glenn, donuts or pig slap? I don't need pig slap. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeded to lose 100 pounds over the next year and a half or so, almost 100 pounds. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, we're both in marketing our whole lives, and so we kind of knew what to do, but we had no idea how it was going to take off. And um, now there's almost a million readers, and you know, we've written 
seven more books, I think it is, and we've got um, programs and clients, and we go around saying that, you know, hey, I'm Dr. Livingston, but I have a pig in me, and maybe you do too. And that's my life. Wow. Well, you're listening to One on One. I'm your host, Jimmy Olson, and I am talking with Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is the author of Never Binge Again, and we've been chatting about kind of like what led up to the book, but let's, so now you're talking about how you published that, and not only did you publish the book, but you helped your publisher start losing weight. Now, let's start moving into, because over eight years of this journal, you've pretty much already created like a, a program to share with others. I mean, I suppose I did. I, I suppose I, I developed the categories of rules and I figured out, I figured out how to, you know, the kinds of rules that worked and the kinds of rules that didn't. Um, I got a lot better though, once we'd seen a few hundred clients and done thousands of sessions. Sure. Because, I mean, because everything were, always, I mean, you start at one point and then you can kind of hone that in to really, you know, make it better. And other people had different types of squeals than I did. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was just living in my own little universe and my pig would basically say the same thing over and over again. Like it's just as easy to start tomorrow. No, it's not because by the principle of neuroplasticity, if you got a craving and you reinforce it today, you're going to be in a deeper hole tomorrow. If you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, or my pig would say, you know, you worked out hard enough. It's, it doesn't really matter. You can have some chocolate today, but, but it doesn't really work like that for me. Um, there were 10 other reasons not to have the chocolate. So I, I only had like a handful of squeals that I really had to deal with over and over again to get better myself. But when I work with all these other people, and then eventually I hired some coaches who work with these other people, I, um, you know, we got exposed to all the squeals that there are. And so now we all feel like we have this superpower where we can help people see the fallacy in their pig's logic almost no matter what it says. So... And I know through a lot of the correspondence that I've received from you over the years, I mean, it, I mean, you've got the food piece, but you're, you're also, it's, it's the, not always the binging of the food because you could be, but it's how you can even tie in, say, you know, the binge watching of a, of a TV show for whatever the, you know, like, Hey, I need to go to go to the gym or, you know what, I don't want to do it. I'm going to watch one more show. But then what happens usually when you're sitting in front of the TV you're finding something else to snack on. It's like, it kind of opens more opportunities. I mean, it, it's kind of like pulling a lot of different pieces together. Yeah, it, it's a structure of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a structure of mind where you make a decision to purge doubt and uncertainty with really clear, bright lines. And the decision that any doubt or uncertainty really belongs to this fictitious entity you call the pig. Because we, you know, we'll define a pig squeal as any thought, image, um, impulse, or emotion that suggests that you'll break your line ever between now and the day that you die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know. So you can use that structure of mind, and as long as you have a very clear rule, you can apply it to any behavioral, um, any behavioral problem that you're working on. So you can make a rule that says, "I will never eat in front of a TV screen again." or in front of a screen again, right? Sure. And that, that solves your binge watching and overeating problem. Or you could actually even apply it to things that don't have to do with food. Like, um, you know, I will never open my email before meditating for five minutes in the morning again. 
and then you hear your meditation pig telling you all kinds of reasons why you have to see your email first. Sure. Um, so that, that, that inner fight, you know, I, I just, just one more email. No, I got it. I was expecting something yesterday. I haven't got it yet. I need to see if it's there. It can't wait five more minutes. Really? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. And people apply it to, you know, porn addictions or mm -hmm. gambling or, um, any kind of complex behavioral economy. If, if they're looking to do it with drugs or alcohol or cigarettes, I tell them to go work with a guy named Jack Trimpey instead who wrote a book called Rational Recovery because he deals with the more black and white addictions that you could give up entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference with food is it's really a complex behavioral economy. You, you have to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block a few times a day. You can't just stop eating. Um, so for that reason, my system is much more forgiving and um, requires that you commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity and keep getting up until you get it right. I say the name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. Um, right. But in it, some ways, it, it's kind of like what we hear a lot. It, it's because, you know, we always hear the diet this or the diet that, which ends up usually you end up on like these yo-yo things, as you were mentioning earlier through your journey of losing, gaining, losing, gaining. But it's it, it's that change of, you know, mindset, reprogramming where what you're thinking. And, and it's that lifestyle change to kind of, you know, I don't need this. I can do this. It's just kind of pulling those pieces together. Yeah, and dealing with the deprivation trap where the pig says that you can't let go of chocolate or moderate chocolate because there's too much pleasure that you're giving up and you're gonna feel tortured forever and you're just gonna be a just gonna be a weirdo in social situations and you, you need strategies to turn that around and really see what you're giving up by continuing to have chocolate. Like, like if I continued to eat chocolate, then I'd have to carry another 70 pounds around with me. Sure. And I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to climb mountains the way I want to, and I wouldn't be a leader the way I want to be in the world, and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be able to be free of worry of cardiovascular problems and strokes and heart attacks and on and on and on. So you, you need some time to figure out what you're going to do with the squeals about you being too, too deprived. Again, you're listening to One on One. I'm your host, Jimmy Olson, uh, chatting with Dr. Glenn Livingston. He's the author of Never Binge Again. So let's kind of like how you were mentioning how your program, you know, striving for, 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 for perfection. All of a sudden, that's a hard word for me. But then it's also kind of like forgiving yourself with the dignity because, you know, maybe you fail, but that's okay. You steep, still keep moving forward and pressing on and try and not let that to, to hold you back. Kind of walk us through that program uh, as much as you can a, a little bit. Well, I think about the psychology of winners. So let's think about an Olympic archer. Mm -hmm. An Olympic archer, they have to commit to the bullseye. They aim at the bullseye with the totality of their being. They need to feel the arrow going into the bullseye before they let go of the arrow. They need to become one with the bullseye in some way and purge their mind of any doubt and insecurity. If the, if the Olympic archer is thinking, maybe I'll hit it, maybe I won't. Um, I'll just do the best I can that probably means they're not going to hit the bullseye. And especially when you're in an area involving pleasure or toxic pleasure, like, like food, um, progress, not perfection 
Maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. That really just means you're going to try for a little while until you don't feel like it anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no other option than to commit to the bullseye with perfection. To find the bullseye really clearly so that you know that if you do miss, that you can see the direction in which you missed, um, how far away from the bullseye you are, and specifically how you need to adjust to get it back to, to the bullseye. Um, however, if you miss the bullseye, you, it's not helpful to perseverate with guilt. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you accidentally touch a hot stove, mm-hmm. you're, you're not supposed to say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down on the stove and just give up. Just like if that's the first thing that pops in your head if you touch a hot stove. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, well, similarly, if you're an Olympic archer and you miss the bullseye, you're going to say, oh, F it. I'm, I'm just going to shoot all the rest of the arrows up in the air or, or mm-hmm. into the audience, right? Right. You have to collect yourself. You, you want to feel the pain. You want to know that you missed. Just like touching a hot stove, you, you don't want to not feel any guilt because – if you don't feel any pain when you touch the hot stove, you won't know where it is. Mm-hmm. You won't know how to avoid it in the future. But once you know where it is and you've analyzed it and you've, I don't know, I keep switching metaphors, but if you go back and you re-aim at the bullseye, at that point, the excessive guilt will distract you and make it more likely that you miss again. And so it turns out that forgiving yourself with dignity after taking a look at what happened is the only successful thing you can do after a mistake. And that that negative voice that you hear that keeps beating you down after you make a mistake, I'm pathetic, I'll never get this. It's always followed by, therefore I might as well binge some more. Right. And the conclusion there, right? So, so the conclusion there is that the pig is actually trying to get you to feel too weak to resist the next binge mm-hmm. by beating you down and pounding the gavel. That's a piercing insight. Most people think that by castigating themselves and allowing that negative voice free reign after they've made a mistake, that they're actually making it less likely they're going to binge again, but they're making it more likely. It's, it's very hard to keep binging if you refuse to yell at yourself. Mm-hmm. Very hard to keep binging if you refuse to yell at yourself. So that's why we say commit with perfection and forgive yourself with dignity. The pig would have you do it in just the opposite way. After you make a mistake, the pig would say, oh, you're pathetic. You might as well just binge your heart out. Mm-hmm. As you're setting out to commit, the pig would have you say, progress, not perfection, just do the best you can. But it turns out that it's the opposite solution on both sides of the fence that works better. You need to flip. The, it's not that you have to give up perfectionism, but you need to flip the way that it's used before sure. and after a mistake. Sure. And, and don't feel bad about, you know, changing the metaphors all the time because you're talking about the archer. And the first thing that popped in my head was Caddyshack and be the ball. <laughs> Get the ball in yeah. the hole. <laughs> yeah, that is a funny movie. It's a funny movie. Well, again, uh, you're listening to One on One. I'm your host, Jimmy Olson, uh, chatting with Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is the author of Never Binge Again. So you've got these programs, you've got these books. How can people find you and, you know, really learn more about the program that, because I mean, even for me, I kind of went through a, a journey of my own. I lost about 80 pounds. So people that have been following me for, for years, you know, both on my podcasts and at uh, different radio stations that I work at, um, you know, and for me, it was 
because I've always not been one that didn't like working out, but for whatever reason, I go to the gym and it just never seemed to work. Um, but then all of a sudden, you know, about 10 years ago, I kind of started going back to the gym, started seeing some changes, but then we'd always give that goal of, I've got to be here for an hour. Cause you know, they tell you, you got to work out for 60 minutes and that's just hard because, and then it starts dragging because that can be a long time. So then for me, I did like this, I could, I, it was like this gym class mentality is like, you know what, if I can do it for 20 minutes, cause that's how long a period was in school, you'd be in PE for 20 minutes, you know, make your way through. And, you know, a lot of these different ways of however you can use that to, you know, motivate and in, inspire it and encourage yourself to kind of hold with it and keep and, and keep moving forward. So how can, you know, people find you, get a hold of you, talk to you and, you know, even take, they've been fighting for this for so long or failing so many times that I'm tired of doing this. What can I do? How can they do that, Glenn? Well, I just want to underscore what you're saying, that you want to start with one simple rule, or I think it's B.J. Fogg that calls it a lead habit. Um, and it could be something as simple, something that you will do because it doesn't feel too onerous, mm -hmm. um, but it would actually make a difference. So like I knew a trucker who said, I'm not giving up fast food because I'm going to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the road, but I won't go back for seconds. I'll never go back for seconds. I know someone who didn't want to restrict their food in any way, and so she said, uh, I will always put my fork down between bites. Um, some people say I'll never eat in front of a screen again. You come up with one simple thing. And I find that if I ask people if they can come up with one simple thing they could start doing tomorrow, that maybe they're not going to lose a ton of weight, but it would turn the ship around. Sure. You start out with that lead habit and you build from that. So in terms of where people can find me, if, yeah. you would like, if you'd like a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format, you can get it at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses. You'll also get a set of food plan starter templates appropriate for any dietary philosophy. So whether you're, you know, ketogenic or high carb or point counters or calorie counters or macrobiotic, it doesn't really matter what you are. We thought through a set of starter templates that you might want to customize for yourself. And last, I, I know this is really weird stuff. I know you're thinking, so Jimmy's got this doctor right? who's got a pig inside him. What's, what's going on? It sounds really harsh in the abstract, but in reality, when you're actually coaching people, it's very compassionate, life-giving um, process that takes people from feeling hopeless and powerless and confused about food to feeling enthusiastic and hopeful in and optimistic and just in, just in one session. So I recorded a whole bunch of sessions, and you can listen to those free also. So let neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. All of our other goodies are available there, too, like our podcast on our social media handles and you know links to all our paid books if you want those too but never binge again is free and kindle nocopedia format never binge again.com and I've, I've noticed some other things that you're kind of uh, starting up too, are like some different webinars because i believe you've got one coming up this weekend and and some other ones that people can also be part of to kind of you know learn more and not just finding out getting that one thing that they can do that's easy but learning more about themselves because it sounds like it's a real personal learning process. Yep. Yeah, we, we have one this weekend on the deprivation trap, which I was talking about earlier. We've got a very detailed way of going through that. Um, you'll, you'll find out about that if you just go to the, um, you'll find out everything if you go to the neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. But yes, we're doing webinars probably twice a month these days for the public. Yeah. And my, my philosophy is to give people enough information that they can recover on their own um, so we can really help the masses, but then we can help people faster and 
more effectively with the with the coaching. So I think it's a win-win for for everyone. Neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Fantastic. Again, uh, listening to One on One, I'm your host, Jimmy Olson, chatting with Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is the, the author of Never Binge Again. Uh, Glenn, thank you very much for your time. You can find him at neverbingeagain.com. Again, he's got to, you know, well, this is one, seven other books, or is it eight total? Or So you've got seven more, or is it eight plus the Never Binge Again? I should have counted before we got on. We, we wrote a lot of books. <laughs> you know what? All those books, everything you can find out about that Dr. Glenn Livingston, find it at neverbingeagain.com. Again, Glenn, thank you very much for your time and uh, chatting with me this afternoon. Okay, man. Thank you. You've been listening to One on One. I am your host, Jimmy Olson. <laughs>